My name is Alison Killing. I'm trained as an architect. In fact, I am, I am an architect licensed in two countries. And after I graduated in that, I worked within the construction industry for a number of years for structural engineers, for architects, for urban planners. And then I left that in 2010 to start working for myself. You're listening to Exposing the Invisible, interviews with investigators about their methods, their communities, and what motivates them to keep going. I had the ambition to build when I started working for myself, but the economy was very weak at that point, so there wasn't a lot of building going on regardless of who you were and how experienced you were. And so I wasn't building and I started to do other things instead. And I worked on research projects and community design and build projects. I did exhibitions. And then I started working on an online documentary about migration to Europe. And that was really the point at which my work shifted properly towards journalism. And since then, I've been working, yeah, doing sort of investigative projects using often using my architecture skills. And um, we've been looking at the network of camps in Xinjiang, and I've been working with a team at BuzzFeed over the past two, three years to do that. The migration work had been, had been focused a lot on sort of storytelling and how to tell this story effectively, whereas with the work that we did on Xinjiang, it was really the challenging thing was to find out what was what it was that was going on in Xinjiang. And so like investigation was much more to the forefront in that. 2016 was a pretty tumultuous year um, for people well, in the UK and, and in the US, I guess, what with the, the Brexit referendum and then Trump being elected. And it just started to feel like that there were a lot of like quite urgent social issues that we needed to deal with and they, they needed a, an urgent response. And as much as I think that architecture and urban planning are really important, um, you know, I, I still think that they're really important, but they're also incredibly slow. I mean, I, I used to work on like 50 year strategic master plans. Like it, it's the sort of thing that you might not even like live to see them completed. And so I was drawn to work that that unfolded on a slightly or on a much shorter time scale, in fact, and that um, had the possibility of, of impact with that. And so I was kind of looking for opportunities to get involved with that. And it, they're quite difficult to come by. Like, I don't have the sort of skill set that is commonly represented in newsrooms. This isn't a common or like mainstream skill to find in newsrooms that I could just apply for a job doing the thing that I wanted to do. And yet I, I could see that I had skills that, that could be useful. Um, and so I was looking for, for opportunities that went with that. And I guess the first thing that happened was that I saw the advert for the, the first Exposing the Invisible workshop. And I saw it and I was like, oh man, that looks really cool. But, you know, like, I just, I don't think I'm qualified. Like they're looking for like journalists and investigators and people like that. Um, and so, yeah, like I got accepted to, to that workshop. I guess it was just like the first time that I was sort of amongst a group of like experienced journalists and investigators and being taken seriously amongst that group of people. Also just to be able to sort of 
um, talk with people and show them what it was that I did, what I found was that people often needed things which I had considered initially much simpler. You know, accessing historical satellite imagery and how you can use that and how you can how you can access it. So from understanding sort of what other investigators needed, from understanding like where they were, what they understood about what I did and what it was possible for for someone with my skill set to offer, it opened the door to Yeah, that, that actually opened the door to to future collaborations. Mega and I met at that workshop. It was believed that there were about 1,200 camps in existence. Around 70 of them had been found. Um, Mega had been the first journalist to visit one of them, and shortly after doing that work, she'd lost her visa for China, so she no longer had access to China, and yet was still very keen to, to continue working on this. Like Access to Xinjiang was like was difficult for any journalist who was trying to work in China. And kind of for two reasons. I mean, the first is the fact that Xinjiang is just so big. And so it's a huge amount of ground to, to cover to try and find all of these camps. But the other, like, more important issue is actually um, the Chinese government's control of information or attempts to control information and the harassment of journalists who want to work in Xinjiang and also, like, harassment of sources. Like, people are, are very reluctant to speak to journalists because they fear like quite rightly, that they could be sent to camps if, if they do. You know, they were reporting that in for people trying to work in Xinjiang, like the Chinese police would be like staging car crashes to stop journalists travelling down certain roads to try and visit camps. So it was incredibly difficult to work there. Like these challenges were something that satellite imagery was able to overcome because it's something that is very, very difficult for the Chinese government to control it can also deal with um, with the issues of scale. And so we realised that, yeah, we had this complementary skill set and we could potentially work together quite successfully to, to try and find this network of camps. I definitely had some experience with satellite imagery and I had skills which allowed me to... So, I mean, one thing is that as an architect, what, what you tend to be, well, in fact, you, you have to be very good at thinking in three dimensions and you have to be very good at moving between two dimensional uh, representations of objects and a three dimensional version of that, whether that's a, a representation or the object itself. And so having constantly over the course of my like studies and over the course of my career, like been working with you know plans and satellite images and elevations and drawing sections through through buildings it was a very very short step to be looking from from there to be looking at satellite imagery and interpreting what we were seeing on the ground to being able to look at photographs taken on the ground and to be able to match them to um, satellite imagery what we were seeing there and identify the different elements that was very straightforward I had two screens set up and on one of them, I had Google Earth. And on the other one, I had a tool which Crystal Bouchek, um, the developer who worked with us, had built. And that had um, these point locations of all of the places where there were masked tiles superimposed over Google Maps. And I was just going through all of these points going like, no, 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 no. 
like maybe that's a thing and I'd like zoom a bit in Google Earth and be like no not a thing no 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 and yeah I'd, and then occasionally a yes or occasionally rather a maybe and that those markers together built up a database which that database then formed the real backbone of the project. We mapped out all of those masked tile locations and it was a bit of a shock to find that there were five million. Like I, I had thought that it was maybe going to be somewhere between 500,000 and a million, which is still actually a lot. But five million was like, you know, t it's 10 times bigger than what I'd expected. Yeah, you, you sort of like realise that actually you've got 10 times more locations than you had originally expected. And you sort of do this like sharp intake of breath of like, oh God, like I hope we're going to be able to like still work through all of this. Like, how are we going to get it done? And then you take a deep breath and you're like, no, like, of course we're going to manage to get it done. Like, this is the job. Like, this is just what we do. And, and then you sort of start working through it and you find the ways that allow you to like narrow that down which in this case was to say we're going to focus on the areas close to towns and the areas along sort of major infrastructure. And in that way, we, we managed to get it down to like 50,000 mass tile locations that we needed to look at, which is still a lot. But it was like I, I went systematically through um, those locations. I was managing to do like 10,000 in a week, which is it's quite a lot. And that was like quite an, an intense week, but it's also like it's manageable. You know, like five weeks of work is, we're, we're going to get there. Like, we can see the end of that when we start. When we began, there were about 70 um, camps which had already been found. Um, and so we knew quite a lot about like key characteristics of those camps. One thing that I found though very quickly, and I remember like calling up Megarim to tell her about this because it was like such like a, it was like such a shock to me, and it was like oh my god, like I have to tell you this. Like we had expected to find around twelve hundred of these camps, but after like even just a short amount of of looking and trying to identify these locations, I realised that that almost certainly wasn't true. In the beginning, the the program had really been a, a series of government-owned buildings, schools, hospitals, maybe empty apartment buildings around Xinjiang, which had been taken over and then in a matter of weeks or even days had been converted into prison camps. And what you saw with those camps was like the giveaways with them was barbed wire fencing in the courtyards. Um, you would see these passageways running between the buildings like lined with barbed wire you would see um, these blue roofed industrial sheds springing up on the playing fields or like squished in between the buildings um, and you would see these um, impromptu car parks which appeared like just outside the site and then with the later ones they were purpose-built, they were much higher security, much more intimidating facilities and they started to look quite different and they started to look much more like prisons which you can see elsewhere in China. Those facilities would have like these really thick perimeter walls. Like really thick would be like a metre and a half to two metres wide walls going around these places. Um, on either side of that wall, there, there would be like one or maybe two layers of barbed wire. There would be guard towers at the corners and at, um, and at regular points along the wall. 
because those places looked very similar to, to, to compounds elsewhere in China. Um, also because we had, in some cases, tender documents or media reports, we were able to corroborate um, with quite a high degree of certainty that, in fact, a large number of these places were camps. And then for the rest, we could basically look at the similarities between Camp A, which ha- for which we had um, a load of corroborating evidence. We maybe had like an eyewitness statement. We might have a tender document. Perhaps a journalist had gone and visited. And then we would see exactly the same features at in Compound B. And we could say like, okay, like Compound A we know is a camp. Compound B has the same features. We can be reasonably certain. Or like we can um, say that that is also a camp and we can say that with a very high degree of certainty. And then going to Mega and sort of being like, oh my God, I found this, so I found that. Um, she was then working a lot with um, ex-detainees, um, doing these really detailed interviews um, that helped us to corroborate a number of locations. But it was also about sort of understanding what the human story of this of this issue was, what was going on more widely in Xinjiang, how did it feel for the people who were involved, what was the human cost of what was happening of this massive detention program and program of oppression. And Mega did, you know, this amazing job of packaging this as like, how can we tell this story effectively? We were able to like make a 3D model of one of the camps. Yeah, sort of give like this detainee's eye view of of what life was like inside the camps. Working back and forth between like making this model, which I did based on like satellite imagery and then a lot of like quite basic architectural knowledge, I put together a draft of this model. And then from there, like we were able to start asking questions of the ex-detainees who had stayed in that place about, you know, like trying to find out how big the cells are because we were able to like count the windows along the facade. So we knew what the basic... Um, structure and what the structural grid was of the building and what a likely division inside was but we didn't know how big the actual cells were and so we were asking questions like you know like how many windows were there in the cell that you were kept in and it was like oh there was one it was like okay very quickly then we were able to narrow down like how big that room must have been um and then sort of how many people were kept in there and it was actually like a a huge amount of overcrowding in that place that we were able to to point to based on that reconstruction um, similarly, there were sort of structures in in the courtyard of this prison, and of 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 this camp rather, um, these like wire pens, and we were able to like go to the detainees and say like, look, we've there's these wire pens in the courtyard. Like, what's going on there? Like, what what happened there? And to have quite a good conversation using that model and using the questions that had come up in the course of my modelling sort of say like oh actually there's like there's a series of different like exercise yards for different categories of prisoner but in fact people were very rarely allowed to go into them they they went out maybe once in six weeks and so um this model served as a really good basis for a discussion that mega was able to have with with the detainees and to find out things like they actually hardly ever left their cells like they were incredibly confined and incredibly controlled within those places only ever moving about like 10-15 meters um, from where they slept um, even when even on days where they went to the classrooms um, never sort of feeling fresh air um, this incredibly like claustrophobic 
um, incredibly controlled experience. And that was something that we were able to get to using um, this like this model and like the techniques that I had and then Mega's skills in an experience in, in interviewing. Migration Trail is, it's a mapped data visualisation and it follows two fictional migrants who are travelling to Europe in real time over 10 days. And then we had worked with writers from, one writer from Nigeria, one writer from Lebanon, to write the voices of those characters as a social media feed which the audience could get either on the website itself or in on Facebook Messenger. And then we also looked, made a podcast series that looked at the wider issues around migration, which was nonfiction. I've actually been interested in sort of migration and refugee issues for a long time. I've got a master's degree in humanitarianism and development practice, as well as in architecture. So I'd, I'd been seeing sort of since about 2013 and into 2014 that there was quite a lot happening in terms of migration to Europe, in terms of irregular migration to Europe. Or like a a big increase in the number of people who were starting to make this journey through the central Mediterranean from Libya to to Italy. And yet it felt like this issue wasn't getting the sort of media coverage that it actually deserved. And I remember reading something in The Guardian that said that even when even when they were like writing the articles reporting what was happening, those articles often had the lowest traffic on the web page. So it's just like it wasn't being read. And so what I was interested in was like trying to find a new way of telling that story and doing it through maps and data and telling it in real time seemed like it might be a good way to do that. The idea that like telling it in real time would help to make it more immediate for an audience. The other thing that I should say that we tried to do with that was to move beyond like just individual stories of the people making these journeys and start to talk about the political context and start to talk about European border policy and asylum processes, which forced people into these journeys in the first place. It took sort of two and a half years from beginning to end, although I wasn't working on that full time over that period. You don't really have a news focus per se, because you just, over that time scale, it, it just doesn't work um, to have that sort of focus. Um, and the the sort of advantage that it brings is that you can actually like step back and provide like this this big like historical context and this big like policy context to what's happening. And that was what we felt was like the strength of what we were able to do. Stuff that it's actually like it's very, very difficult to provide in news reports. I mean, for issues of space, if nothing else. I mean, I, I would say that like probably the storytelling came to the fore much more in Migration Trail. It it really felt like a design project to me, like this, like, okay, we, we've got this story and like the story did need a huge amount of research, a lot of traveling, a lot of like interviews that, that I did. I sort of like traveled all of the major routes into Europe, like right back up into Northern Europe. I spent two weeks on one of the rescue ships in the, in the Southern Mediterranean. So there was a huge amount of research that went into it. And it was, you know, really about like, you know, what's the most effective way to tell this story and what are the different aspects of this story that we want to tell and how can we, what are the different formats that we're using 
like what are they good for what can we do well with with those and then how do we work how do we get them to work together to to tell this really effective story you know like the map was really good at sort of of showing like the scale of of what was happening it was also really good at sort of linking together what i think for many people were like this really disparate set of stories that were spread across Europe about fires in the camps at Calais, about large numbers of people landing on the beaches in Lesbos, you know, border walls springing up through the Balkans and sort of showing how they could be tied together into one much bigger story. The social media um, storytelling that we did was really good at sort of showing like the personal side of like what it meant for the people who were like undertaking these journeys themselves. Um, you know, like giving people this very like intimate picture of of what it was like to to do that journey and to be in touch with somebody who was taking that journey because you were getting these messages in this very like personal intimate space on your phone and in a in a messaging app where it really did look like the messages were coming just to you and then the podcast was was also like a really nice format to work with because there's a number of things that you can do quite successfully. Audio is a very good medium for for discussion of quite complex issues. Um, so that allowed us to really get into like the policy, the the history of what was happening with migration to Europe. It's a medium that works very well for for carrying emotion. So if some when somebody was like telling us about you know the journey that they'd just gone on, like it could really successfully convey what it had been like for them. Um, to do that and like the emotion that had been involved in that. And it's also a very good medium for recounting historical events. So somebody could be telling us about something that had happened like two months ago when they were leaving Syria up to something that had happened yesterday when their boat sank and they had to be brought in by the Greek Coast Guard. And that could still work in that format and could work very successfully as a um, within that format. I've been trained in design and then also like in in making things. Obviously, there's a creativity there, but you also have to like really understand techniques very well and what it's possible to, to do with them. That ability to sort of like develop concepts and then sort of to come up with concepts and develop them rigorously, that helped a lot with the migration trail work that I was just describing, where you have a story and you're trying to work out how all of these different elements fit together successfully. That to me is really is very much a design problem. I really enjoy the sort of like that combination of creativity and technique and sort of understanding of technique that that needs to go with it, where you're trying to understand like how it is that that people are working with a given technology or what it is that a given technology does. Because actually because of the migration trail work, I had this really good understanding of how interactive maps work. And that allowed me to know that when I went to Baidu and I found these like strange strange blank squares in the locations of these camps that that wasn't just a problem with the map loading and it wasn't just that there was information missing from the map and they put a blank tile in instead but that there was something much stranger going on yeah I mean I I find it quite enjoyable to like push and poke at these different things and try and develop these like different investigative techniques and ways that we can like maybe start to look at these issues which are like by design very very difficult for us to investigate to look into what's happening in Xinjiang when the Chinese government has been working very very hard to shut down access and shut down access to information and yet like we've been able to find these ways around that.
like I'm really enjoying what I'm doing now, but it's just really difficult to say where, what I'm going to be doing in 10 years and where I'll be. You know, 10 years ago, I was convinced that I was going to be an architect and, and building buildings. I do now feel that I can more confidently call myself an investigator and refer to myself as a journalist. I feel like I've proved that I can do this now and I have the right to, to say that about myself. I think I just don't know yet in what sense um, winning the Pulitzer has had an effect on our work. When the announcement was made in the middle of June, we were like right in the middle of this story where we were trying to calculate the capacity of all the camps. You know, the following week we were still busy with that. Like, you know, the work just goes on. There was, there's plenty of work for us to do. I mean, it, it has been amazing to, to get that recognition. Um, I think, you know, for me and Crystal, there's definitely a sense that like the, the different skills that we bring are like valid and, and useful and have have like really very real contributions to make to the field of journalism and to investigation. Well, neither of those are traditional journalistic backgrounds. And so it was great to, to have those sort of techniques and approaches sort of recognized and validated in that way. But it, it's lovely. Exposing the Invisible is a podcast by Tactical Tech with funding from the European Commission. Interview and production by Joe Barrett. From Tactical Tech, the Exposing the Invisible team is me, Wael Iskandar, Laura Ranka, Marek Tyshinsky, and Christy Lang.